All right, let's bring him in now. It's Scott Burnside from The Athletic who joins us on air. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Doing very well, gentlemen. How's your uh, Saturday afternoon going? Good, good. Uh, I'm up in Vancouver and it's it's snowing, so it's uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a sign about the sign of the where the hockey team is at right now, uh, a bit of a snow apocalypse ahead of another big game for them tonight against the Flames. Uh, but we want to bring you on to, to talk about the other big story going on in the NHL this week, which was uh, a big change at the top in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jim Rutherford, a couple of weeks ago, had uh, left the spot. And uh, earlier this week, the news that Brian Burke, someone who we worked with at uh, Sportsnet, who we had on our show a number of times uh, over the last few months, is joining the Penguins as president of Hockey Ops and Ron Hextall, a guy who uh, people really felt like he was going to get a second opportunity at the GM job uh, after having built a pretty strong team in in Philadelphia. We've seen that the last couple of years that they are uh, a team to be reckoned with and those two team up in Pittsburgh. What did you make initially of of that combination and and how things shook down in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I I thought it was, uh, I mean, all of it was uh, more than a little dramatic. You don't often see um, general manager moves mid-season. It's something that is almost always done in the off-season. Now, you mentioned Philadelphia. Uh, Chuck Fletcher taking over for Ron Hextall in the middle of the season, must be three seasons ago, um, was you know was one of those rare moments there where the Flyers made that change and, and Ron Hextall, um, you know, has been waiting I think for for an opportunity since. And and I agree with you. I think, uh, and he spoke about this a little bit after being named the Penguins GM and during the the media call that. You know that you obviously learn lessons, especially as a first-time GM, and you know how things um, you know might have played out a little bit differently in Philadelphia. Very, you know, I mean that's a it's a very unique dynamic with Philadelphia Flyers, and 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 I think Ron Textall probably learned a lot through his process there. And but when you look at his work, starting with the LA Kings, an, an absolutely pivotal part of the two Cup wins for the Kings in 2012 and 14, uh, a real eye for talent and, and, the, and the knowledge of developmental programs. So, um, I, I mean, that part of it is, is is going to be important in Pittsburgh at some point. Now, the, the bigger question is, you know, what is that team's path in, in, in the short term? I, we, we often use the term, whether it's a cliche or just the reality, but teams – you know, cup windows open and close. Uh, if you're lucky, they open and, and you take advantage of it uh, before they close. And we've seen that with the Kings. We've seen that with the Chicago Blackhawks. And and I think we're really, I wonder where we're at with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, two very disappointing playoff performances in the last two playoff years following back-to-back cup wins. So I, I, I'm not sure I can understand where ownership in Pittsburgh is like, listen, we still got Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, you know, both while well, older are still very much at the the upper echelon in terms of NHL talent. Let's let's roll the dice and let's see if we can squeeze another cup or two or long runs over the next couple of years. Um, I'm interested to see what Ron Hextall, of course, the head of hockey ops there, Brian Burke. You know, do they believe the same thing? And 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 if not, what happens then? And I think that's you know that will be made a lot clearer when we. You know, the Penguins do make the playoffs, not a given in the East Division right now. And what happens in the playoff year and um, in a few months, then um, I guess maybe we might be at a reckoning sooner than later. Scott, the um, the Brian Burke part was 
you know, surprising to, I think, a lot of people, um, puzzling, I think, to a lot of people as well. Um, why did they go with Brian Burke? And, you know, have you gotten any sense of clarity as to, you know, what he brings to that organization, why they might have wanted him in that role? Yeah, I, I, I mean, my sense of it is that they were, the Penguins, is, through the course of their interviews, and they did cast a wide net in terms of both the GM role and the possibility of bringing in someone, uh, a president of hockey ops, not a position that has been, uh, has existed with the Penguins before. Uh, I, I think they looked at a number of people. I, my impression would be that Kevin Weeks interviewed very well there, and if they didn't feel that Kevin Weeks maybe was going to be the fit as a GM, maybe he could be the, that hockey ops kind of figure there. Um, and I, I really do believe the way that the team president, David Morehouse, explained it is exactly how it unfolded, that they had been you know, using Brian Burke or, or relying on Brian Burke as a kind of a sounding board um, because Brian's knowledge of the hockey community is ex- is exhaustive, so they might have been, you know, testing the waters on on various people who whose resumes were coming across their desk. And and at one point, if Mario Lemieux said, "Well, what about Brian Burke? What about Brian Burke coming aboard here, not as a GM, but as the president of hockey ops to to work in tandem with Ron Hextall?" Um, and, and my sense is that that Brian Burke probably wouldn't have jumped at just any job, but you know the opportunity to, um, to to work with uh, I think an organization that remains um, you know sort of one of the um, the model franchises if you will in the NHL in terms of how they are connected to the community their grassroots hockey program they're very innovative when it comes to um, uh, you know sowing the seeds in youth hockey in that community. Um, and they're one of the highest profile franchises in the league. And I think that appealed to Brian Burke. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the relationship is like, a working relationship with um, with Ron Hextall and, and Brian Burke. It, it, my sense is they will work in tandem. Um, and my sense is that Brian Burke may become, uh, I don't know whether the face of the franchise is the accurate way to describe it, but maybe he becomes the voice of that franchise in answering questions about direction, bigger picture things. And my sense of Ron Hextall is that that would suit him fine, that his job is the nuts and bolts of the hockey organization. And as you, that team is going to have difficult decisions come up, what to do about Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby, Chris Letang, um, because they have been a team for the better part of a decade now that has gone for it, right? They, they have not been a draft and develop team per se. They have been a draft, develop, trade those assets to continue to restock for uh, an annual run of the Stanley Cup. And um, so Ron Hextel's job is, is going to be parsing through what to do and in what the timeline for making the inevitable changes um, to the direction of that team. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see, but I think my sense is that the two of them should work very nicely in tandem. I kind of like the way it, at least it shakes down on paper. You mentioned uh, Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang, who have one year left on their deal uh, after this year. Sidney Crosby has four years left. And, you know, the backdrop to all of this is that the Penguins as an organization are are clearly going to have some decisions to make about kind of continuing down the path of trying to win or going through a little bit of a rebuild. Um, Darren Dreger made some interesting comments this week on TSN Radio in Toronto so, sort of suggesting that if there was a rebuild coming, that 
you know, maybe Sydney's Sidney Crosby would want his legacy in Pittsburgh to be that they moved him on and, you know, were able to sort of harvest some assets for him. Um, was that surprising to you to hear? Can you see, you know, Sidney Crosby at some point over the next four years putting on a jersey that's not the Pittsburgh Penguins? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely can. And I, and I think that's because we're, we're well beyond the, the idea that a player can, you know, is necessarily only tied to one franchise. And, and, and we've seen it happen, whether it's the pandemic and the flat cap or whatever the dynamics are. But when you see Henrik Lundqvist go to the Washington Capitals, now, of course, an unfortunate heart issue will prevent him from playing this season. But the idea of seeing Henrik Lundqvist in a jersey other than the Rangers is it, shocking and it's startling, but it's real. And that's where the Rangers got to in their evolution and, and in terms of their their new directions. It's beyond rebuild now, I think, but there wasn't room for Henrik Lundqvist there and it made sense for him to move on. Same with Zdeno Chara, who, of course, I think has been excellent for the Washington Capitals this year. But we also know that the Boston Bruins are, are a team that is a perennial Stanley Cup contender. They're 10-1-2 and as we speak now. Um, there really wasn't room moving forward in that lineup for Zdeno Chara. And, and I think you know, my sense of what will happen with Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins, nothing will happen there that Sidney Crosby doesn't want to have happen. So if Sidney Crosby wants to ride it out and whatever, wherever, whatever the direction is, whether it is stripping down and rebuilding and, and, and maybe missing the playoffs, something that's never happened during his tenure there, um, is I guess his first year, sorry. So, uh, but since his second year has, has not missed, but he will decide that. And and if he gets to a point nearing the end of that contract, and as you point out, if they can yield assets to help that the team grow and and reseed um, the, the 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 cupboard there, um, then then I'm guessing the Pittsburgh Penguins will work with Sidney Crosby to find a place that makes sense for him. So um, it's, to me, it's not shocking to imagine that that might happen. Um, but by the same token, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is a team that gets into the playoffs, wins a couple of rounds, who knows, goes to a conference final. Um, because the Penguins, you know, when, when you have a guy like Malkin and Crosby and, and Latang, um, I don't think you can ever truly count them out in spite of the fact they've had two disappointing playoff losses in a row. Scott Burnside from The Athletic joins us on air. Israel Fair, Alex Blair. Uh, earlier this week, prior to the Penguins ultimately making their decision on their GM and president of Hockey Ops op, uh, decisions with Burke and Hextall, you had a fun piece at The Athletic about uh, GM searches, what goes into it. There's a lot of fun details going back to uh, the Detroit Red Wings and their uh, GM search in the 80s that led to a great period of success. And it's really dotted with a bunch of details like that. And reporting that piece, what what stood out to you about uh, the, the back and forth the teams and candidates have when they are trying to find the new general manager? Yeah, I mean, it was, so, it was, it was fun to, to, to sort of go down the rabbit hole a little bit on, you know, what goes into the, the interview process for an NHL GM. I, I think it's easier to get your head around, well, what happens when there's a coaching vacancy and you know that the GM and maybe some of the hockey ops people and the assistant GM or whoever's involved in that interview process – you know, there's a real, it's not a huge step away from coaching to, to GM. It, it, you're, you're 
you're all in the machinery of the game and in the machinery of how teams get built. But sometimes, and maybe in a lot of cases, when a GM opening comes up, the people who do the interviewing, who are doing the hiring, are maybe even more at length, at arm's length from the, I'm using my air quotes here, but the hockey part of the of the organization. And whether it's an owner, a team president, uh, I talked to one GM who said, you know, teams that he knows teams that have used outside search um, uh, organizations or a search uh, um, group to help find a new GM. And and so I found it interesting that sometimes the people who are doing the interviews, um, you know, aren't maybe that they aren't hockey people and you know sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't um and i was curious about the kinds of questions that get asked and it, and it covers the whole gamut of uh, detailed uh, whether it was power play structure scouting staff uh, budget handling all those kinds of details and i talked to other gms who, who found it much more uh low-key that it was much more about personality uh, an owner or a team president really trying to get a sense of, of a potential GM's personality. Could they work together? And I, I thought that was interesting because there are no, there's no direct blueprint. There's no, uh, you know, 10 things you, you must get right in your interview or you don't get to be an NHL GM. It, it was all over the map. And, and for me, maybe one of the interesting things was at the end of the day is that I talked to a number of GMs who felt it was as important to them that they knew what they were going into, that they actually, I talked to one GM, actually asked for us for a second interview so he could ask a bunch of questions uh, of his potential employers to make sure it was going to be a good fit because it's not the kind of job, well, that you should go into lightly. Maybe sometimes it happens that way, but um, it, it is an investment on both sides of the ledger. And uh, so it was fun to, to, to hear about some people's experiences on both sides of that. Scott, I wanted to ask you, you would have spent some time around the Canucks during the 2011 run as sort of a national writer, and I wanted to get your sort of perception of the Mike Gillis, Lawrence Gilman sort of management group that existed in Vancouver at that time, and also just your perspective on the fact that Mike hasn't worked in hockey since being let go from the Canucks. Was that a surprise to you? Can you give some context as to maybe why that has occurred? Yeah, you know, it is interesting, and, and you're right, I did, you know, spent uh, you know, during my uh, for earlier incarnation as a national guy with ESPN, did spend um, a, a fair amount of time around the Canucks, certainly during that run to the final in 2011, and um, always enjoyed my conversations uh, with Mike Gillis, and of course, Lawrence Gilman as well, and I think, and I think if you go back to that time, um, I, I think in a lot of ways, they were considered um, very forward thinking and whether it was uh, looking at sleep patterns and all kinds of different things that, that at that time seemed um, very cutting edge and, and very enlightened. Um, maybe a lot of teams picked up on some of those, uh, those ideas and, and, and use them for themselves moving forward. Um, and I am a bit surprised that, uh, that Mike Gillis isn't, you know, isn't somewhere else. He has always been, though, I think, an outside-the-box kind of guy. And and I do know, you know, and we know this from the reporting, whether it's a team like New Jersey or some of the other teams, I don't think he's completely out of the mix. Like, I don't get the sense that it's, uh, you know, that that ship has sailed. And I don't know whether, you know, Mike Gillis wants necessarily to get back in. Would he be the a GM or a president of Hockey Ops? 
sort of anywhere or if there's a particular place he'd like to go. Um, but I don't get the impression that that ship has sailed necessarily. And uh, I, I do think, though, that they, when you look back at the history of that team, and for a number of years, they were they were certainly one of the best teams in the NHL when you when you look at the product on the ice. But I also think that they were considered one of the top teams in terms of the structure, in terms of the organization. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say that the team has chased that ever since, right? It's, it's never quite been able to regain that swagger. They've never been able to regain that sort of foothold and that traction to be considered an elite NHL team. And they were for a period of three or four years, just that. And, you know, maybe it's just a function of how the ebbs and flows of the game and it does take time to get back there. But um, certainly the fact that, um, you know, the various uh, management teams that have come and gone since then haven't been able to replicate it um, should tell you something, I think. It is definitely a question that Canucks fans are asking themselves right now. How do we get back to that place? Uh, it has been an ugly start to the season for the team, but uh, still got a nice young core. I'm sure if a job was to come open, that it would attract some some interesting candidates. Anyway, Scott, really appreciate the time and the, and the insight, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, anytime, guys.